Why should I have been surprised? Hunters walk the forest without a sound. The hunter strapped to his rifle. The fox on his feet of silk. The serpent on his empire of muscles. All move in a stillness. Hungry, careful, intent. Just as the cancer entered the forest of my body without a sound. The question is, what will it be like after the last day? Will I float into the sky, or will I fray within the earth or a river, remembering nothing? How desperate I would be if I couldn't remember the sun rising, if I couldn't remember trees, rivers, if I couldn't even remember beloved, your beloved name. I know you never intended to be in this world. You could live a hundred years, it's happened, or not. I am speaking from the fortunate platform of many years, none of which I think I ever wasted. Do you need a prod? Do you need a little darkness to get you going? Let me be urgent as a knife, then, and remind you of Keats, so single of purpose and thinking for a while he had a lifetime. Late yesterday afternoon in the heat, all the fragile blue flowers in bloom, and the shrubs in the yard next door, had tumbled from the shrubs and lay wrinkled and fading in the grass. But this morning, the shrubs were full of the blue flowers again. There wasn't a single one on the grass. How, I wondered, did they roll back up to the branches? That fiercely wanting, as we all do, just a little more of life? A reading by Mary Oliver, The Tropic of Cancer, The Fourth Sign of the Zodiac. Welcome to the show, everyone. What is this all about? Becoming more human, hence the title, is really just taking the time to explore an idea or topic and then ask questions about how it pertains to our actual lives. It's practical theory with a hint of the nomothetic as well. We want to understand the world and what to do with it. And that's what we're going to do today. The past few episodes, we have been talking about memory, one of those things that we talk about but don't really take the time to consider in depth. But it is also something that is literally a part of every moment of your life. Ergo, we should probably understand it and then use it to live better. But today, I want to offer a bit of an offshoot angle on memory and human existence, which is really a conversation on death time, and how you are a limited, finite, finicky human being constrained by the processes of aging with a strange limitation that you can ever only be fully conscious of the absolute present moment. I mean, this is what people talk about when they say that once a moment is gone, it is gone. The past is over. Or that you, you shouldn't live in the future, just be present. Very literally, there are no other options. And as we looked at with memory, even a recollection of the past is not the actual past itself. You can never fully recover or re-enter something that is back there. And yet, we still have memory. It's almost like our brains tease us. We can still reflect on what's happened even though it is not accessible in reality. In episode 34, I I told you the story of my crazy airport experience after I got married. 
but it was just my experience of it. No matter how much I would want to, I can never actually go back to that experience. It's over. So despite all the conversation on memory and and despite our culture's awareness of, you know, living in the present, I think this connection between mortality and limitations and the conscious ability of memory can tell us something about the human condition. And considering this angle may help us understand our present lives better than, you know, cliche quotes and esoteric sentiments. So that's what I want to explore today. Of course, please subscribe. It helps. Leave a review on your preferred streaming platform. And if you find the content valuable, please consider leaving a tip or becoming a monthly contributor on Coffee. That's ko-fi.com slash becoming human. You can also find more content and articles at my website, tylerkleeperger.com. There's lots to look at. And there's an email subscription option if you want the most recent content emailed to you. But that's enough of that. Let's get into it. Let's learn, let's grow, and let's become more human. The first part of our episode is a question. Do you have a memory that you vividly remember? One you can recall with as much clarity as possible. Maybe something you come back to again and again, or an experience or moment or feeling that you you grip that with all of your might, almost like you need it. It's a part of you. Do you have a memory like that? Something that you long for? And if if the memory was taken away, you know, it would be devastating or it would feel like losing a part of you. And why does this memory stick with you? Why is it so consistent in your long-term memory? Like something, something had to charge it to be encoded with so such tenacity that you still have it. So, so what is that? And I, I think of uh, the the first time I cooked, like actually cooked, not just like something in the microwave. It, it was this this romantic feat of mine. It was the week before. I married my my spouse, and I had gone and and picked all of these wild flowers and and set up the room, which was a relatively banal apartment, and I cooked duck breast with with a fruit glaze on it, and and I had literally like I've never cooked anything before, and I took all of this time in order to figure out how to do it right, and there was all of this anxiety because you're cooking in a moment, and are you going to do the right steps, and and I did it, and and it was good, and that kind of marked the beginning of a a new season of life where I was going to marry this person and cooking was going to become like a huge part of our life together. And it all started there. And and like, I I can remember so many details and moments and senses of that. Like it's there, it's with me and I hold on to it. It's important, right? Or on the other side of this, I I remember um, the first real fight I, I ever had with someone who happened to be my brother. I mean, it ended with like a table breaking and our bodies went through drywall. It it was intense. And I remember all of the stuff that led up to it and, and all of this sort of under the surface tension that there was in this season of life for us. And I also remember we fought over, it was, it was cookie dough. And it just seems so trite now. But but I like I can still feel the anxiety in in my bones from when all of that happened and 
you know, it's still there. It's been encoded. It's long-term memory. I still have that moment in my head. And the real question here, the real question is why do we have such a longing or appreciation or, or a tight grip for certain moments of the past? And yes, we could get into, as we did the last couple episodes, of how that, you know, biologically and psychologically happens. And, and that's still important. And, you know, hopefully that is helpful to you as well. But on this existential level, why is all of this still there? And okay, so this might be a bit of a superficial example compared to the intensity of that reflection I just put you through. But think about think about when someone makes a social media post and they say, I'm posting this here so that it comes up on my timeline every year. Maybe I'm the only one who has seen this, but it seems common. Honestly, you know, I think social media has replaced the scrapbook. Do you remember when you actually, you actually had to take a picture with a camera and then print it? And there were people who would then, you know, cut these pictures using a variety of scissor styles. Then you had to glue the picture onto decorative paper, add various stickers or handwritten descriptions in order to eloquently remember a moment Thanks, time hop, such is no longer necessary. But though technology maybe changed this process, it really hasn't changed the human desire to remember the past. I'm guessing that this is not something that gets brought up very much. We all have memories. We talk about memories. We imbue our conversations with, you know, remember when... Or, you, you know, we simply spend a hefty amount of moments talking about moments that already happened, you know, catching up your conversa- conversational partners on events that led to the present. Why do people spend so much time thinking about the past? And I'm not talking about this from the angle of, you know, like holding baggage or wounds or, or even, you know, hey, you're not being present. You're living in the past. I mean, those are real things. But I'm talking about the inclination to have the past be so integral to our day-to-day life. You know, the innocent, average reflex to even think about those things. Why do humans have such a propensity to bask in the nostalgia of what is now gone? So we've talked about memory. And I think I think it's helpful to keep all that in mind. You know, the process of how memory works and the subtleties to how memory functions in our perception of reality. And there's a lot of value that memories have in the human experience. Being able to recollect and and remember accomplishes several goals of survival and well-being. And these are worth pointing out. First, it maintains heritage. And it helps an individual kind of see their lifespan in the context of a collective group that transcends just them. You know, if you're going to try and do new things you have a foundation on which to stand via memories. So that's that's one role that memory has. Secondly, that foundation not only reminds you of your dependence on other people, you know, from the past and from your own past, memory also allows us to learn from and utilize the past constructively. You are able to continue to progress the narrative you are a part of, and you can do this appropriately by knowing and paying attention to what led to where you are. Memory keeps us from repeating mistakes, and it allows us to live according to a larger strain of existence. 
being alive is like, like traveling a map, right? It's best to use the markings of previous travelers and former adventurers. In order to know where you are going, you have to know where you are, have been. Memory allows us to do that. So these are some of the benefits. All of these, however, are valuable because they share one common theme. The reason you have to continue what's been started by someone else and try to improve upon it is because those people died. If we were all immortal and invincible, memory would just be a nice pastime. It wouldn't have any sociological role or even psychological role. But they died. So you only have to work with what other mortals handed to you and you are going to die. So you must utilize your own memory to strengthen your survival as much as possible. Now, I'm, I must confess, I'm, I'm not up enough on the current offerings of evolutionary biology, but I'm guessing there is a role of memory in human survival. And so psychologically, biologically even, but especially sociologically, memory plays a role. But more importantly for our conversation today, I think that memory is so integral to human existence because it somehow plays a role in the very essence of our mortality. So what I want to do is to explore this through one of my favorite concepts, phenomenology, and then I want to take a look at what exactly time is based on a popular philosopher theologian, St. Augustine. And then I want to ask how we might appreciate and acknowledge what our memories are doing to us as human beings. And we'll end with how it might help us live better. So we have this death problem. There's a couple things that show up in every culture that they wrestle with and, and kind of orient their lives around. The necessity of nourishment, that's one. You know, we have this requirement of eating and drinking. Physical growth, another one. Biological processes, reproduction. Every society has written about these things, integrated them into their lives, their cultures, their rituals, all of that. But then there's the more abstract stuff too. Love, justice, happiness, those show up a lot as well. But the one that shows up more than any other, the most consistent, most heavily emphasized and most impactful experience that has formed the function of human beings and been their largest grievance is death. It's such a basic assumption of being alive. And yet it's so confounding. A basic fact of life, but one that when you think about it, it might not be completely necessary. Why is death such a huge, just blatant, part of existence. In, in, in side note here, uh, for, for any fantasy nerds, okay, you've probably read J.R.R. Tolkien's The Silmarillion. It's like the, the etiology and history of Middle Earth, the, the precursor to the Lord of the Rings, okay? Uh, this is worth mentioning, believe me. Tolkien takes on this perplexity here about death, and he puts a spin on it. In the brief kind of lay version is that the first creatures to exist in, in, in this world, what we call elves, they don't die. And this is both good and bad. Then we meet another kind of creature, humans. And they 
age, and die. And there are all these interactions throughout the various stories about the elves are, are fascinated by this concept. And Tolkien's twist is that the mortality of humans is talked about as a blessing. And this is partly because of the intensity and the appreciation it instills in life. I mean, do we ever stop to think about the role of death in existence? Why does it happen? And what is the universe like if death isn't a part of existence? So Tolkien's thing is just another way to think about it. But but I think it helps us see this, this subversive angle on memory, which brings up the other problem besides death or the other blessing in Tolkien's view. We only know the world to the extent that we have experienced it. This is an essential reality of being a human. And this is called phenomenology. One day, I may have an episode that doesn't use this concept. Today is not that day. Next episode doesn't look good either. Anyways, yes, this explains why our arguments suck and why no single person is working with all the information. We only know what we know, and we only see what we can see. But this other issue is that those experiences that we know and see are always fleeting. You can't constantly see and experience the world that covers the span of your life. Your memory is an attempt to hold on to the phenomenological reality of the world as you've come to know it. But as we've seen with memory, you can't see and know the past once it becomes the past, at least the full version of that past. So, you're going to die, but also, while you live, your understanding of life is constantly fleeting and amorphous. We, we tend to try to hold on to our life before our inevitable end comes, but we also try to hold on to our experience of life as it constantly ebbs and flows into oblivion. So that's that's the death and phenomenology point that I'm, I'm hoping helps make my case for this angle of memory. And what this brings up when thinking about death and phenomenology is time. Humans are vastly constrained by time when it comes to our memory, when it comes to our perspective, and when it comes to our own mortality, all of that gets wrapped around the issue of time. It's one of the only things that the more you have of it, the less you actually have. Which brings us to St. Augustine. St. Augustine's a 4th century theologian and philosopher, um, and he's most noted for giving us uh, the concept of original sin, That's right. Original sin wasn't a thing until the 4th century. Keep that in mind. He also introduced uh, views on creation that, interestingly, here's what I love about this, thousands of years of Jewish and Christian tradition never thought to be true. They they never came to these conclusions, but all of a sudden, St. Augustine figured out the proper readings of things like Genesis. Interesting. Anyway, hardcore folks love Augustine, call me a blasphemer, but I don't, I don't think either of those uh, were his greatest contributions. Quite frankly, I, I take some disagreement with them. Um, I, I don't really like Augustine. I, I mean, his narrative is awesome. He's from Africa, came from nothing, all of that. Uh, and maybe I'm a bit arrogant, but 
I think he was way off on some of his theological thoughts. The fact that a lot of his theology is a result of his personal guilt for sleeping around, also worth considering. Enough of that rant, my apologies. Augustine does, however, have an articulation of time that I have found very helpful. He was trying to explain metaphysics, okay? How a transcendent, non-human being could interact with regular human beings. God, as it goes, is singular and absolute. Humans are contingent and finite. Don't get caught up in those details. The point is, any absolute deity would somehow have to be separate from the constraints of human existence, the ones that we've been talking about so far. That phenomenology thing, the death thing, all of that. God can't be limited by that if God is God. God has to, therefore, be outside of something like time. So how could God be present and involved with finite creatures while also maintaining these distinctions? This is what Augustine is trying to argue when he talks about time. And for Augustine, it meant he had to take a unique angle on this issue. Time, Augustine claimed, is created by God, which means God cannot be in the existence of time. Uh, For those of you interested in the technical side, this veers toward the modern understanding of what's called impassivity, that God is external of and unaffected by things like time, experience, etc., Therefore, okay, back to Augustine, in order to make a case that God is involved in human life, that's something he felt was important, Augustine said that though we think there are three tenses of time, past, present, and future, uh, there's actually only one. Augustine felt that past, present, and future are better described as these three understandings, memory, attention, and expectation. And they only take place in the one tense of time that actually exists, the present. Part of this is that reality is literally confined to the present, and that's, again, a phenomenological issue with human beings and all that. But he wasn't saying that there is only the present, okay? Yes, the past, once it becomes the past, no longer exists. Your finite phenomenological constraints make that inaccessible now. The future, in contrast, it it doesn't exist yet at all, except for how you might consider a moment that is to come. Maybe Augustine was like the first New Age self-help guru. I don't know. But the nuance here is that while there are technically, you know, three tenses of time that we think of, past, present, future, there's only one reality of time. You can experience time in lots of different ways, but only the present is reality and capable of being fully realized. And we've actually seen this as we've been talking about memories and stories and all of that. And this is what Augustine called memory, attention, and expectation. And he described it like this. You have the present experience of past things. That's memory. You have the present experience of present things. That's attention. And you have the present experience of future things. That's expectation. Can you be in the present moment 
and not actually be present. Of course. Even the present experience of time can fail to exist if we're not aware of it, if we don't have that attention. You know, there's a difference between being somewhere and actually being there. You can also be in the present, but actually be living in a different present experience like the past or the future. Essentially, time is an illusion that helps us make sense of the world. But remember, the whole reason Augustine wanted to make this point is that he was trying to speak to the human condition of a frailty and finitude and limitedness. You are dependent on time and its continual passing. Each moment for you is a moment that is over. Each moment is the present becoming a past that now no longer exists and one day your life will end with it. To be human is to live in a phenomenological constraint. Is this why we look to the past with sentimental longing? But but this is what this whole diatribe on, on death, perspective, and time means in terms of memory. Every time you remember something, you are thinking about something that is now over. Every remembered moment is a reminder that the moment is gone. You only have what you see and what you know, but every present moment of seeing and knowing is constantly vanishing. Our presence is constantly becoming absent. Now, I don't want to get too morbid here. I also don't want to take away from the fondness associated with remembrance. But let's consider how this plays out. Have you ever heard someone talk about the good old days? Now, I'm not saying that there's nothing good about this. This is what I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Reflecting on and remembering the past can serve as a means to, you know, simply express gratitude. You know, you look back, you remember that person or that thing or that event, and it brings you joy. You know, you see all these moments that created the life and world you know, and you know, there's a peaceful contentment to it. That's a good thing. Or, you know, this reflection can help you hold on to what is important and what has given your life meaning. Or sometimes it is helpful to remember the journey behind you so that you can t- continue good things or learn from mistakes. Experience can help the present. You know, maybe that's the evolutionary biology take. It's also sociological. It's also psychological. There, there, there's a role that this all plays. It's also worth mentioning that the further we get from a moment, the more we tend to romanticize it. You know, for example, the crazy airplane, airport experience that I shared a couple uh, episodes ago. I don't remember all the details, and I probably twisted some based on how my memory has affected it. Or, you know, the fight with my brother over the cookie dough, or that first meal I cooked. There's, there's some of that that's not quite the way it actually was, but... I also am probably veering that toward a romanticized version of it. And a lot of this does deal with how memory works. The way we encode means that we're going to store either traumatic events or we simply store in our long-term memory the pieces of the past that were positive 
or, or we twist them to how it fits the narrative we're trying to embody, whether that's good or bad. But the further you get from something, the more smoothed over it becomes, like, like rocks in, in the bed of a stream. But I think there's another component of our conscious lives that explains why we do this in the first place. The good old days are days that are finished. Someone can be entrenched in the past, you know, fondly reflecting on life as it was. And it can be a way of expressing gratitude or reinforcing an identity. But are we also reaching for something that is now unreachable? I've officiated hundreds of funerals, and I see this all the time. And I get it. You know, a person who you've walked with and loved and understood the world because of, they are now just a memory. The absence of breath also means the absence of an experience of the world that is forever unobtainable now. Funerals are sad. Yes, because a person is gone, but a person being gone also means that the world as you knew it is different and can never be the same again. Our memories and our mortality are linked. And the older I get, the more I notice myself reminiscing on days gone by. I I yearn for former moments. I have an increased practice of shuffling through endless troughs of photographs. And there's a growing frequency of retreating to the land of nostalgia. There, There seems to be a linear progression of age and recollection. Maybe this is because, you know, we can physically sense that life is becoming more absent. You know, it literally like as people around you die the world fades more toward oblivion but is life simply a process of becoming aware of what is over like you've probably heard it said time is a thief memory reveals the finitude of time which therefore reveals the finitude of us who are doing the remembering do do we make scrapbooks and social media collages, because we know we are going to die, and those moments of the past are foreshadowing the inescapable end before us. Maybe we take tons of photographs as a sort of last-ditch effort to hold on to what is gone. Maybe we talk about the days of yore because we desperately wish we could have them back. Maybe we remember things because we are coming to grips with the reality that the end of our lives is now one moment closer. I think there is a human desire to to transcend age and death. The emphasis on on leaving a legacy that will remain once we are gone, that's been a central engine to existence throughout history because death is inescapable. And our lives are made up of moments that simply remind us of this fact. one One of the most vivid memories for me, you know, if I was to answer that question at the beginning, you know, the, the cookie dough, yeah, the, the, the first meal, yeah. But the, the, I have this memory uh, that I, I often retreat to, and, and it's of one of my children, my, my firstborn child, which is probably why it stores so well. It's a moment when we had just moved back from California, and our lives were chaotic. Uh, we, we didn't have any of our stuff. Uh, we, we were kind of living with nothing, Um, We had been messed with by a moving company. We didn't have any money either, didn't have any work. It was a really desperate time. 
And uh, I, I remember, I always sing a song that I, I've kind of uh, creatively altered for each of my children's names. And I was, I was holding my, my son Landon, who was about six months old at the time, and I was singing to him. And as I was singing, uh, it was just bringing this flood of awareness of how difficult life was and the hope for it to change. But I'm also holding him wondering that as our lives continue, what is he going to grow up with? What what have I given him? And it was this really heavy moment and I just started weeping, standing next to his crib that thankfully somebody had given us because we didn't have a place for him to sleep. And I'm just crying and he has no like uh, observant awareness that I can tell of him responding to this. And it just, you kind of feel silly in a moment like that. But I remember that really dearly because it was a moment where I felt that something real was fading into oblivion. I, I, I could sense that this moment right here will never happen again. And yet it's a moment that I desperately need to change. But that's also a moment I continue to hold on to. It's, a, it's almost a, a reminder of what was, but also what was lost. Because he grew up and things did change and we had to adapt. And I'll never have that back. And to be honest with you, every now and then I'll grab a blanket and I'll throw it over my shoulder and I'll pick up my now nine-year-old and I'll start singing him that song again. He either just thinks I'm weird or begs me to put him down. But that's the reality of it, isn't it? And for you, whatever memory you answered that initial question with, do you hold on to it because you know that it's gone and you desperately wish that it wasn't? Do you hold on to that? Because if if you did lose that, it, it would be one more part of the essence of your being fading away. It's like those branches in Mary Oliver's poem that I read at the beginning. How desperate I would be if I couldn't remember. And then she ends with the branches. Did they roll back up? that fiercely wanting as we all do just a little more of life. Is this why we hold on to these memories? Maybe it's not just about encoding and long-term memory and all of that. Maybe it deals with time and our mortality. Every time you remember something, it is like a mirror reflecting your own end through moments and people and experiences that are now unreachable. Something is finished within the span of your life, and and while you can reach back in your head, you will never be able to experience that time in the same way again. And and this this is the morbid, gloomy, obvious conclusion that might just be the unavoidable facet of the human condition. Memories are a way of grieving our own death. Memories are a reminder of the passing of time and its unreachable absence. Memories force us to come to grips with the fleeing past and how every moment is a last that you'll never get back.
Now, you may be asking, how are you going to dig yourself out of this weird hole? Is there any good news in this? And that is all an angle to consider of how our memories function as humans. But how is this supposed to help us live better? And despite that morbid take, what role do these memories have then? And I've already hinted at the answer. And while this function of memory is a bit macabre, when you consider these two sentiments, that your life will inevitably expire, and two, that every moment is now a moment that is gone, it has a unique possibility. Remember, Augustine's articulation of time, the only form of time is what is able to be experienced in the present. You must have an awareness of the present, and you can have a present expectation for the future, but you can only actually live in what you have right now. Yet, while the past is now something that is finished, what you do have, and this is what I've been trying to emphasize, what you do have is the present memory of the past. And that offers something useful. Because in your memory, reminding you of your impending death, and in reminding you of that the past is over, it also has the possibility of catalyzing your presence and helping to mentally accumulate what has led you to this moment. Here's what I mean. When you are fueled by the awareness of your impending demise, the memories not only are a means of mourning what is gone, they become the instrument that drives the life you still have left. But it starts with being honest about time. It starts with acknowledging that morning and what is gone. And when you are honest about time and, and the phenomenological nightmare that is the human existence, you can also be honest about the time you have left. It's like memories. And in being a means to grieving your own death can also be a means to activate your imagination for the days to come. This is what Augustine meant, or at least how I interpret what he meant. Present awareness allows for reflective past acknowledgement, which allows for proper expectation of the future. Memory, attention, expectation. And because you only have what you know, you can't make decisions on the future with anything else. So memories are like a toolbox, albeit a somber one, for the next right step. In the face of a limited future, the, the most important role of the past might be to show us where we have been so we might better decide where we are going. Yes, the past reveals your unavoidable death. Don't act like you're somehow above that. But your past also reveals what you ought to do before your breath fades into dust. The invitation of all this is partly to live more honestly and to live with a peculiar awareness of your life, of all that has led to where you are right now and, and where you might go in response with your remaining days. Where have you been? What have you seen? What is the current culmination of your lived experience? Are there people walking a terrain that you walked decades ago? Can your finished moments help with their present ones? Are there regrets that are now forever out of reach? Can you find ways to redeem those in the moments yet to come? How can the past, though it is gone, inform your attention in the present and your expectation for the future? Maybe that's the role of memory.
It, it proclaims how finite and mortal you are. It constantly reminds you of what is finished. But then it gives you the perspective by which you can keep going with what you have left. It, it's the hope within the hopelessness. It's the loss of immortality and invincibility that makes time more meaningful, which is possibly why Tolkien made mortality a blessing to the humans of Middle-earth. And part of this invitation that I hope we can catch is that your memory, attention, and expectation isn't just about your life. I look back at decisions I made a decade ago, and I can't change them. But I can offer that memory to people who have yet to walk the path. In light of my own death, I wonder how I might hand to the people who will come after me a more complete map than what I had while I was here. The, the human journey, it, it's a bunch of people who won't live forever. It, it, it's a collective sojourn. What you have and experience is dependent on a chain of consciousness that brought the for, forth the world as, as you know it. And you are actively bringing forth the world as someone else will know it. Humanity is just a bunch of finite beings building the world one mortal life at a time. Some parts of that journey have been atrocious. Others were a bit off track, but, you know, found a way to lay groundwork for progress. We tend to think that we are the first and last who will walk this road and explore this map of existence. We look at ourselves as enlightened beings compared to those inferior nobodies who came before us. They're no match for our grandeur. But our grandeur exists because of the work they did with the tools they had. Our world presides because they brought it forward. The past gave us the map of life that we now call normal, and our current map isn't the end of that discussion. And when we're honest about the speck of dust that we are within the totality of existence, it provides a proper sense of proportion and perspective. And when we have that proper sense of our place in the story, we might begin to see that we will not complete the map either. Quite possibly, the only thing we can do with our frail souls is to better allow those after us to continue what those before us started and never finished. Maybe that is what legacy is all about. Add to the map of existence before your breath diminishes like vapor. Use what you have seen to allow others to see more than you could have imagined. Because just like your past, the past that is your life will one day be over. But the memory will remain. What will you leave for others to pay attention to in the reality of their present? Maybe human beings have this weird relationship to time and memory so that we can all collaborate our finitude into one enormous hope of life. The future will be enacted in the present by people who morbidly understand but also effectively use the gift of memory. May you grieve your own death with every passing moment, for then there is a possibility that you can contribute to making a better world within the limited constraints of our bodies and our minds. Thanks for listening, my fellow frail humans. See you next time.